The year is 1711. Great Britain is under the stress of two major conflicts at the same time, which is taking its toll on the royal finances. As a result, the Parliament sets up a private company to consolidate £9 million of government debt. Whilst more orthodox than might seem on first sight, the scheme slowly becomes volatile through uncontrollable speculation until the year 1720, when the bubble finally bursts, which forever engraves it in the annals of history. Welcome to Corrupt Money. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Helen Paul. She is a lecturer in economics and economic history at the University of Southampton, where she specializes in early modern economic history, Atlantic history, and most importantly, the South Sea Bubble, which we are going to cover today. Dr. Paul wrote a book and her PhD thesis on the South Sea Company and has been invited to various discussions to talk about the topic, so it is a great pleasure to have her here today. Welcome, Helen, and thank you for joining us tonight. How prevalent were financial bubbles in the pre-modern era? There were smaller financial bubbles before the South Sea bubble of 1720. The 1720 bubble is probably the most famous one, but you do get smaller bubbles in insurance companies earlier on. And I think that kind of volatility um, is just an endemic part of the stock market. So it's not unsurprising that there should be some noise traders coming in and being over enthusiastic about something before 1720. But 1720 is the most highly publicized uh, version of a financial bubble to start off with. Can we see a particular era where they like started occurring quite often, for example, uh, in the 17th century or maybe earlier on? It's, it's hard to say because, of course, the earlier we go back, the more limited the market actually is in terms of how many shares there are available and also who's involved in those share trading activities. It, it's really when a larger tranche of the public start being involved that it becomes much more heavily publicized. And also that's where your noise traders are likely to come from. It's the uninformed new investor more than anybody who's going to get very upset when the market crashes. Well, as beforehand, investors, even if they lost money, they, they had a much better understanding that that was just part and parcel of being involved in these high-risk investments. Um, so it's, it's not that I think that necessarily that there's any particular period where they become more prevalent. It's just that they become sometimes more publicized. Now, were they just a European phenomenon or, or can we see them in other regions such as Asia? Well, we don't really have a modern stock market anywhere else at the time. So in the early modern era, the first stock markets are really the European stock markets. But you supposedly, presumably have overinvestment of one kind or another in any place where you can have something that's tradable as an investment that then can be a, an object of speculation. But really, I think what you get eventually is the stock market widening up to be the global stock market, the global financial system. That's when you start to see a completely different 
type of, well, inter interconnectedness in the global finance that didn't exist before. At what time this interconnected financial system develop? Well, you start to see early uh, indications of it when you start to get the stock markets in Europe being connected because the same people are trading in these different markets and money's moving from A to B to C. So the in 1720, for instance, the crash on the Paris market then is transmitted by people moving money from Paris to London. London has a bubble that then crashes. And then you start to see smaller effects on the Amsterdam and Hamburg markets. So that's really the first, or it's seen as the first international financial contagion episode. But after that, markets are, are connected. And every time there's a new stock market appearing, that will connect in to the existing international system. Fair enough. Now, before we start talking about the South Sea Company itself, what motivated you to write a book on the topic? I had actually done my PhD on the South Sea Company. And the reason I did that is because I'd done a module when I was doing a master's degree on economic history. And there was just a little bit about the South Sea Company. And I just was very interested in it. But I was told, oh, everything that's to be written about this has been written. There's not a lot there. However, I was lucky to have a supervisor who was also really interested in the South Sea Company. I didn't realize that at the time when I said, can I write an essay on this? He said, oh, yes, you should do that. So it was, it was quite fate that I ended up doing my PhD with someone who was also as interested in the company as I was. But, you know, it was at a time when it, it wasn't such a hot topic. Um, and then I did my PhD. And then, of course, you want to turn your PhD into a book, partly because of the interest in the subject, but also partly for your professional <laughs> advancement. So that's why I wrote it. Now, why was the South Sea Company created? What was the motivation behind it? The basic reason was that the government, the British government, needed to keep its naval contractors happy. They had been giving credit to the government. They'd been supplying goods and services on very long terms, you know, the time that they would wait and patiently to get paid. But there was a limit even to their patience. And the government was running out of ways to pay them. So it generated this new company, the South Sea Company, and gave its naval contractors shares in that company in lieu of their obligations. Uh, and that was really how it started off. Was it normal in that era to do such a financial transaction, let's say, or, or you, call, you call it the credit equity swap, right? Uh, was it a new instrument or, or did, they, did they already use it before? They'd use similar sorts of tactics. I mean, basically, you've got a lack of cash, coin, whatever you want to call it. You've also got a government that's running up huge bills to try and keep itself on a war footing to be able to pay for all these expensive wars. So the, what you see is a lot of stopgap measures and attempts to, in a very short-termist way, attempts to deal with each crisis as it comes along. And what that does is have an unintended consequence of creating financial innovations but actually giving people a kind of IOU and then swapping that for something else just to keep the wolf from the door, that wasn't particularly new. Did that particular instrument make the markets uh, more risky? It's hard to say, really, because the markets at that point are very connected to the government and the government's existence depends on its 
existence as an independent state. So it, the question would be, what happens if you lose the war and you get invaded and somebody else comes and puts their regime in instead of you? That would be uh, a big default risk because the new regime might well say, we aren't liable for any of this, any of these promises that have been made. We're just going to tear up the rule book and start again. So it's a completely different world. I mean, it's not like today where I think you can conceive of risk and conceptualize risk in a slightly different way, because most of the time you're not actually being invaded by uh, a hostile army. <laughs> yes, exactly. Fair enough. So did governments deal with national debt differently than they do today? Yeah, they actually were starting off with a royal debt, which was essentially the monarch's own debt and that a lot of the monarch's spending was tied up with state spending. So what we've got today is a separation of monarch from state, crown from the state. And of course, we've got more republics around the world than we did back then. Uh, and essentially what we're seeing is a transfer from a royal debt to a national debt that's connected not to the lifespan of a particular person, but to an open-ended presumably perpetual state or country that's going to use tax revenues from the future to be able to barter that today and say, you know, we, we can borrow against this future tax flows. What about the people who invested in the company and who purchased these uh, credit equity swaps? Uh, did they understand the markets or was it really just a mania? We've got two different things going on. We've got people who've got some sort of government debt an IOU of some sort, and they're being offered shares to swap their, their debt instrument for a, a share. So that's the debt for equity swap part. But we've also got people who can buy shares in the company directly on the primary market or even on the secondary market. So they can just buy shares, even though they've not had government debt holdings. And there are lots of different reasons why somebody might invest. There are people who just want to buy shares because they're going to give a steady fee. The government was paying the South Sea company a set fee every year for, for some of its financial services. Plus the company was also a slave trading company and there was a potential for more money to be made there. So there were different sorts of revenue flows and different investors perceived them as more or less attractive depending on their attitude to risk and what they wanted the money for. So the South Sea Company was actually a company who did their own transaction. They, they, had, they had their own business, let's say. It wasn't just a dummy created by the uh, by the government for them to create these credit equity swaps. It was actual business who people invested into. There were actual ships leaving the Thames. They start off with four Royal Navy ships that go out to establish various what were called factories in what was Spanish-held America. In the various ports, they were allowed to go to by the Spanish crown. And then they got together with a, an existing slaving company called the Royal African Company and worked with them to go to Africa, West Africa, with goods that they would then use to swap for enslaved people that the slave traders on the West African coast would bring to them. Then they'd ship them across and if your listeners are interested, you can go on the slavevoyages.org website and you can actually see the records of those shipments 
But for a long time, it was claimed that the company didn't have any ships or it didn't know what it was doing. And the slave trade side was downplayed, partly to generate this idea that it was simply a shell or a dummy company. They didn't do anything or they did something strange to do with finance that no one understood. And that kind of story actually erases the, the enslaved people completely. People went across in their thousands. That, I mean, it's something, thousands of people died on the middle crossing, the middle passage on those ships. And then the fate of the people who survived that was equally horrible. So that is what underpins an awful lot of the, the South Sea Company's activities. And that's why investors like Thomas Guy of Guy's Hospital fame are now being reassessed. So you're now getting charities that got money from people like Guy reassessing their history and maybe taking away a statue or move, renaming things. You can see that starting to happen now. So now we do have a functioning business. Uh, what made it special? What, what actually led to the bubble at the, in the end? Well, what made the business special is that they had a right called the Asiento to ship slaves. That was given by the Spanish crown to Queen Anne and transferred to the company. It had naval support, it had the Royal African Company support, and it had state support. So that's the essential mix of the, the trading arm of it. In terms of why is there a bubble, there are lots of different reasons. Part of that is you're coming at it and out of wartime, there are two big wars that are coming to an end or have ended, the War of the Spanish Succession, the Great Northern War, and that's frozen up a lot of assets and a lot of the uh, resources that could be redistributed in some other way. But you've also got money coming in from France because the French market has collapsed, so you've got a contagion effect. You've got some people who are extremely wealthy and who pour money in to the project far more than they should and then they complain bitterly when they don't get the re returns they were expecting and you also have some people who are just sort of naive noise traders so it's a bit like a dot-com bubble for example where there's an underlying business reason why you'd want to have dot-com companies but you can't stop really naive investors rushing in or bitcoin bitcoin has its reasons for existing but you get people who don't know anything about it who say to you quite late on, should I invest in Bitcoin? The answer to that is, if you've heard of it, no, because by the time you've heard of it, the people who knew what they were doing have invested in it. And now you're just being attracted by the news stories. That sort of thing happens back in 1720 as well. Do we have enough historical data to estimate how many people were naive investors and uh, how, how much percent, let's say, were actual investors who wanted to rationally invest into this company and make potentially some money out of it? It's very difficult because the South Sea Company, although it continued on working for the government, handling government debt into the 19th century, it seems that their books were then thrown out as some sort of clear up exercise. And we don't really know exactly who invested and how much they invested because those books don't exist. We can look at Bank of England investors and we can find occasional particular investors like Thomas Guy. And what we tend to find is wealthier people who either gain a great deal or lose a great deal turn up more in the 
the surviving evidence, but we don't really know who anybody else was and what they were doing because their records don't survive. Now, you mentioned France. Who was John Law and what role did he play in, uh, in this whole era? John Law was a Scotsman who is variously described as a gambler or a great economic thinker. And in fact, those two things are connected because he was able to use his skills at the gambling table to think about how to deal with uh, early statistical thinking. He was thinking of things like having a, a state official paper currency instead of just a stopgap measure where people hand out pieces of paper with government backing as a kind of IOU. He wanted a proper, what we now think of as banknotes, proper banknotes. So he had a lot of great ideas. The problem was he was trying to implement them very quickly without the restructuring of the underlying political and social system, which was, of course, this aristocracy and royal system with a lot of power held by the aristocracy. Essentially, his reforms just went far too far, far too quickly. And he had, therefore, to deal with a bubble on the Paris market that was called the Mississippi bubble. When that crashed, when that burst, he then had to leave France very hurriedly because, of course, he was easily scapegoated by the regime who trusted him, who'd gone along with his plans, but then decided that it was all his fault and off he went to die in exile. So he's he did a much more thorough overhaul of the French economy, but that's probably not what the French economy actually needed in the end. How much did the Mississippi bubble impact the South Sea bubble? Well, it's firstly one of the reasons for the changes in the British market that what the South Sea Company was doing was to keep pace with what John Law was doing in France, because the theory was if the French restructured and the British didn't, the French would invade Britain, which, to be fair, they probably would have. So if one country had become strong and the other was weak, all hell would have broken loose again. But then when Law's bubble burst, when he started threatening people, he started insisting that they couldn't take their wealth out of the country. Of course, they then panicked and tried to get their wealth out of the country. They didn't want their money being confiscated. And by going to London, they started pushing up prices on the London market. And that's part of what draws in the naive investors as they start to see prices rise and they assume prices are going to continue rising. You have the same thing in France as well. So people's behaviors uh, during financial crises and bubbles haven't really changed in the past 300 years. Not really. There's, as long as you've got a tranche of noise traders, they'll start to see price rises as an inducement to come in. And then you start getting people who see the noise traders and buy into the same thing in order to sell out. And that kind of inflates what's called a rational bubble. We can see certain bubbles having an incredibly detrimental effect on the, the economy and investors, like, for example, the real estate bubble in 2008 or before 2008. Uh, how detrimental was this one to, to the British economy and its people? Surprisingly, the South Sea bubble doesn't seem to have had any lasting effects in, in economic terms. Uh, an economic historian called Julian Hoppet looked at all the economic indicators he could get hold of, things like bankruptcies and the like, and he just couldn't find any examples of a lasting 
problem within the, at least in England, even though there was a lot of fuss made. Now, somebody else called Patrick Walsh has said that maybe Ireland was affected because it was a much smaller economy and money being drawn out of Ireland might have had a bigger effect there. But it's nothing like the kind of damage that was done in France because John Law connected so many bits of the economy together as part of his restructuring that when that went wrong, it went badly wrong. Well, as when the South Sea Company suffered its, its share prices crashing, the Bank of England was able to step in and help sort that out. So essentially what then happened is that the slave ships kept going, unfortunately. They kept leaving the Thames. And there was a big show trial, a sort of talk of the country being ruined. But if it had been, then I think you would have seen a lot more effect of that in, in the surviving data. Besides the Bank of England, how did the, the British government react to, to the explosion in the financial markets? It managed to have a big show trial. Politicians didn't really understand financial theory, much of which hadn't really been developed. Very few of these people, if any, were actually financial insiders. So there was a lot of rhetoric about finding culprits, and they got all the South Sea Company directors and got hold of all their assets and valued them and confiscated some of that, but also had a kind of big show trial in the Houses of Parliament. As well, one of the people who knew an awful lot about bribery that had gone on, the bribery became a focus. And this man was a cashier of the company, he's called Robert Knight. And he was basically allowed to escape because if he hadn't done, he would have been talking about, for example, the king's mistress taking money. And that was covered up. So it was a bit of a cover up. It was a bit of a kind of show trial. There was a lot of talk. And then behind the scenes, the Bank of England was doing a lot of the financial restructuring that was needed. Was bribery and corruption and, for example, paying or giving loads to someone to invest into, into the company itself, was that prevalent uh, before the bubble happened? All these big companies were bribing people. And we could say bribe, but in the way of doing things in those days, you had government officials who weren't being paid a proper salary. They were being paid fees. So you can call something a fee or you can call it a bribe. And part of it is when something goes wrong, it becomes labeled as a bribe. But it had been perfectly acceptable. If you think about, for example, people giving presents to Anne Boleyn when she was powerful so that she would do things, speak well on their behalf, that was just part and parcel of the way things worked. But of course, if there's a big crash or if something goes wrong, you don't want to be seen to be issuing bribes or taking bribes, fees, bribes, presents, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Were there any changes implemented in the way the financial markets work uh, after the bubble happened, maybe in the UK or even in France, let's say with the Mississippi bubble? Well, the French system was had to be repackaged again. I think there was a lot of things like, say, the, the paper currency that was just then had to be put to one side. But within the British system, there were various attempts to create legislation that was supposed to do something. Something called the Bubble Act was instituted. Well, we now call it the Bubble Act, but it was really about stopping companies that didn't have a royal charter from carrying on their business and issuing shares in the same way as a company that had a royal charter. But this 
this actually didn't do very much. It wasn't used much at all. And essentially, we're going into a period where we're going to the run up to the Industrial Revolution, where shareholding became much more tolerated, normalized part of society's way of doing things. And I think what you, what you get here is you get politicians and lawmakers who don't know what they actually want the law to do. They just keep saying, we should stop stock jobbing. Well, what's stock jobbing? What is it? And so unless you've got a very clear definition and you've got a regulator and you've got some means of policing this, there's not a lot you can do. So it's not until much later that politicians get the, the know-how they need to actually realize that if you want regulation, you have to have a regulator. You have to have a set of rules. You've compared the, the bubble, for example, to the dot-com bubble, right? How accurate is that comparison? And if very much, have we learned nothing in the, in the past 300 years and in the regulation and the way we organize financial markets? Well, I picked the dot-com bubble because actually a lot of the companies that were floated during that bubble period actually worked and still exist. So if you bought into, say, I don't know, Amazon or somebody like that, you could make a lot of money, especially if you bought and hold the shares and you wait until people have panicked and left the market, whatever. Of course, you get a lot of focus on the people who've lost money and who are shocked that they've lost money, but there might be an underlying reason why actually it's not that destructive. And when you compare the dot-com bubble to the bubble you were talking about, the housing bubble, the 2007-2008 crisis is much more severe. Or the Wall Street crash, for example. There are instances where there is huge damage and it's really visible. And then there are instances where people get very upset and some people lose money, but it's not actually the end of society as we know it. It's not actually creating that really deep economic pain. Yes. In your in your Gresham College lecture, you say that the uh, the South Sea bubble occurred in part because uh, the stock market was relatively new and uh, very few people understood finance. Uh, do you think the situation is better today and now that we have sophisticated mathematical models and computers? I'm not too sure about that because, of course, if there's something wrong with those models, then that actually creates an echo effect. It creates more of a problem. And we can certainly see that with the idea that you can somehow repackage risk, the mortgage risk, for example. Um, that all assumed that there wouldn't be a problem with lots of mortgages all at the same time. You can repackage something, but if you have a problem with all of the mortgages of these low-income people, then you get a massive default. And then that goes through all these strange kind of repackaged um, debts instruments, you, you can see that there's still this idea of people trading in things they don't really understand. So you don't think it's something we can deal with, let's say? I think we could if we could deal with regulating the markets. We can actually can step in and regulate the markets, but there's always this pressure to deregulate. So there's always this pull, push-pull about, here's this problem, right, we need regulation. And then after a little bit, it's almost as if the People can see the opportunity to make more profits. They can find a way around it. A lot of the time, regulators are trying to pay catch up to stop innovations that maybe aren't very good, that are going to have problems, but are technically legal under the, the system. And of course, then if you get regulatory capture, if you get 
politicians deregulating for ideological reasons or because they've been promised lots of money by somebody, then you get, you go back to the situation where all hell can break loose again. At least in terms of governmental response to when the bubble actually happens already, are we better equipped to deal with them than 300 years ago? Um, it's hard to say because we've, I think, lived through worse financial problems than the South Sea bubble. Uh, and certainly, I think there's much more willingness to, to employ people who actually know what they're doing to deal with the financial side of things. But of course, that just is dependent on who's in political power at any one time. Um, are we better off? Really hard to say because the South Sea bubble wasn't actually that damaging. So it didn't really present the politicians at the time with the kind of challenges that that our that we've seen in our lifetimes. Now for my last question, uh, you've already mentioned this today and in your lecture, uh, that economic historians can't really find much evidence on the real impact to the economy with the South Sea bubble. Why is the bubble then so well remembered today? I think there's that issue about gains that people thought they were going to make that they don't. So they complain about, not that they've been thrown out of their house and now they're starving in the street, but that they don't get the reward they thought they were going to have. So there's always this as well, this dislike of the nouveau riche, the, the financial sector that's not very well understood, the idea that this was a, a way in which all sorts of people that were on the fringes of things, foreigners or particular religious groups or servants could get above themselves and that wasn't very popular. It as well, I think, is this, sometimes you get these outpourings created by the press and by politicians of a kind of fake news. Yes, some people lost money, but some of the people who lost money are very wealthy aristocrats who just wanted to build another wing on their house and couldn't do that and were aggrieved, really aggrieved that that hadn't happened. But as well, you get this huge amount of interest by people who probably aren't involved in the market, who, who fear it, but who also want to read scandal about it. And scandal sells, sells much more than saying, well, some people made money and some people lost money, but we've sort of come out evens. The scandal is why we remember it, because we remember the prints and the plays and the poems and all the other things that say that finance is a casino and that people went gambling mad. Absolutely. Before we finish the discussion, uh, would you like to give our listeners a platform where they can learn more about you and your work? Uh, well, they can look at my staff page if they would like to do so. That's at the University of Southampton and they can just Google my name and University of Southampton, they should be able to find me. Well, thank you for your time, Helen. It was great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me.